All right, Proverbs chapter 12, if you'll turn back there with me. Last time we, again, didn't quite sneak out of the back end of the 12th chapter. We left off in verse 24 was the final verse we covered. So verse 25, we'll pick up in together as we continue to go through the book of Proverbs together, uh, sort of giving to us sort of a workshop on wisdom as we're now looking at these different Proverbs that are given to us, these great little nuggets of wisdom and insight in these small and memorable phrases here. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25 certainly addresses something that all of us uh, from time to time find ourselves experiencing on occasion. He says, Proverbs 12, 25, anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. So he addresses here something that we are all prone to, which is the experience of anxiety, and that can come in many different forms, whether it's just through worry over a particular thing that we're dealing with or something that we're concerned about, whether it's anxiousness about the future or maybe a, a situation that's transpiring. Sometimes it's just our own wrestlings with our own thoughts. And again, we're extremely complex beings, our thoughts and our emotions. You know, God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that we're an inferior trinity, that we are body, soul, and spirit, even as uh, God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We are, uh, you know, spirit, soul, and body. And in being made in the image of God, the unique thing with us is uh, we are such you know, complex beings that sometimes I think it's almost difficult for us to differentiate uh, what's physiological, what's just emotional, what's psychological, what's spiritual. And sometimes we kind of find ourselves wrestling with things and we're not quite sure exactly what it is. But from time to time, we find ourselves dealing with anxious thoughts or anxious feelings and again, the reason we know this is true is because the Word of God addresses it, and God wouldn't address it if it wasn't something that we would be prone to in our human nature. In the New Testament, he tells us not to be anxious for anything, but by prayer and petition to present our request to God so that when we're anxious, there are antidotes, there are things we're to do. And here he kind of just describes really the progression of anxiety, which can lead itself to really a, a rather dark area in our lives. If we don't learn, and I'll use this term, if we don't learn to regulate our emotions. Uh, and again, we're going to have emotions, we're going to have thoughts, and as I've said before, uh, the thoughts we're thinking in our minds, the emotions we're feeling, they are very real. They're real, and we don't want to ever discount that. Even someone who may be having suicidal tendencies, real thoughts, real feelings. But the thing to differentiate is sometimes real thoughts and real feelings aren't right thoughts, or they're not right feelings. And so therefore, we have to learn to regulate and to sort of keep control over those things lest they bring us to a place that's not healthy. So anxious, concern, and worry, if left unregulated, the Bible says here, giving to us wisdom, if left unregulated, anxiety in the heart of man can actually cause, look, it says right there, it causes depression. That is, it can kind of escalate to a place where if we're overly concerned and chronically worried and continually anxious, if we don't regulate that, that can cause us to then start to feel very defeated. 
and start to feel very discouraged and very uh, disheartened, and all of a sudden the world gets narrower and narrower, and, and things seem to look darker and more difficult and impossible, and hopelessness sets in, and then all of a sudden we go from tremendous anxiety and worry and fear and concern to kind of complete depression, where all of a sudden now there's almost a sense of just utter despair and hopelessness, and, and that can be something that we all go through from time to time, and that's why it is important to learn how to regulate our thoughts and our feelings. And one of the blessings when we find ourselves struggling with such things is this thing we call that God's designed human relationships. And as Christians, the value of what we call the body of Christ, the family of God, that we have interaction. Again, in the New Testament, we have all these one another phrases, love one another. And again, all these different phrases to remind us that we are supposed to do life together. Uh, that, that independence and isolation is not healthy. What goes on inside of this little skull of mine, if I'm not at times interacting with other people, can get really dark and can go to really unhealthy places. And so God's intended us to be relational creatures. Again, from the very uh, onset of uh, creation, God told man who was made perfectly in all of his wonderful majesty in the Garden of Eden, and even in that situation, God said of man as he looked at him, it's not good that man would be alone. And God said, I'm going to make a helper suitable for him, comparable. So God sees this value of human relationship, and that applies on much broader levels. And the fact that we interact with one another is one of the greatest safeguards and things that helps us to be able to do this thing I'm describing, which is to learn to regulate our emotions and our thoughts and feelings to kind of keep ourselves in a healthy place because people can then not only just compassionately listen and console us and let us work through and, and deal with what we're dealing with and be sympathetic, but also at times they can give to us helpful insight or an encouraging word or counsel that can be the very thing that can kind of be an initial antidote to help bring us back out of that darkness a little bit. And you notice that he says here, anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. So the most helpful thing that we can do for those who are dealing with anxiety or struggling with depression is really just to compassionately speak a word of hope. That is not to, you know, try and overdiagnose, well, why did you do that? Or why are you feeling like that? Or that's stupid to feel like that. Or what's the matter with, but instead to just project to them hope and to indicate to them that there is hope, that there's hope in God, that, that, that God can help in this situation. And that just to say something that is going to be edifying and uplifting, a good word of what things God can do how God can restore gladness, how that though this may be a dark time, that even though God may be walking us through the valley of the shadow of death, uh, that God can bring us back out of that valley and out to the other side to green pastures once again. And what we want to do is be able to speak some word that's a good word that's going to restore gladness to their soul. It's going to bring some sense of, of, of encouragement back to them in a way that's going to help them. And again, that can't happen if when we are struggling with anxiety or depression, we isolate. That's foolish. And let me just say this evening, if at times you struggle with anxiety and then anxiety then finds itself translating further and causing depression, the worst thing you can do is disconnect from people. 
The worst thing you can do is go to, that's exactly what is going to cause things just to progress and get worse. The best thing that you can do, regardless of how you feel or what's going on, is to keep yourself to a degree connected to some people in some way in order to help counterbalance that. Because again, even God here seems to be indicating some degree of an antidote is someone who can speak a good word to make that person who's anxious and struggling with depression to have some degree of gladness, to see some light, if you would, in the midst of that dark tunnel they're dealing with. Now, verse 26, he then says, and the righteous should, and isn't this interesting? Here's this relational concept just kind of carried on. The righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. So notice, the Bible says the importance is our responsibility on being selective, even in the relationships that we have. So certainly we need to have relationships, that's essential, but the other thing that's important is God tells us that it's not wrong to be choosy and to be selective in regards to who we enter into close partnerships with, who we have relationship with, particularly when we think of those who are our friends, that's describing close partnership, those who are our comrades, not just people that we're going to hang out with once in a while socially, but friendships, those who we depend upon, those who we share things with, those who we kind of do life together with, and the Bible says that the righteous person, the one who wants to live right with God and live right before God should choose, and notice that's a key word, choose. You don't just make friends and enter into relationships with people in a light manner, but you choose, the Bible says, your friends, and you do that carefully. You know, this is a fantastic word of insight and wisdom, particularly for our young people when they go back into a new school year or to our young people in their teenage years. The Bible says, choose your friends carefully. Don't just hang out and establish friendships with people for sake of status or popularity or wanting acceptance. No, the Bible says, choose your friends carefully because influence is a very real thing. It's going to happen. Close partnerships will influence us. And so if we establish good friendships, there's going to be beneficial influence. There are going to be genuine, sincere people who are going to be loyal to us. They're going to love us and care about us. They're going to do things in our lives that are going to enhance us to go in right directions rather than doing the opposite. He says there, verse 26, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. So again, you could be influenced in a good way or very clearly you can be influenced in a wrong direction. Here he says the way of the wicked can lead us as people astray. First Corinthians tells us in the New Testament, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good character. You know, I remember about a year after I became a Christian, I was just going through a season where, you know, I was still trying to figure out my own walk with the Lord, and I'd kind of, you know, gotten radically saved, you know, a month after I graduated high school, and I was trying to find the balance still of interacting with people that I felt I had a degree of connection with, and sometimes hanging out with, you know, Christians, but also still hanging out with people in the world who I kind of felt like I had connections on other levels with. And, and, and I started realizing that I was struggling and something was going wrong. And I particularly remember coming to that verse in the New Testament, and, and that was just like the Lord made it jump off the page. There's your answer, Tony, bad company. 
corrupts good character. And if you're going to have interaction with and close partnership and constant you know, experiences with people who do not know the Lord and love the Lord and want to walk with the Lord, then, then the reality is they're going to have influence upon you. It's just a reality. It's going to happen. And so the Bible gives us great wisdom here. Choose your friends carefully for the way of the wicked can lead astray. That's often what happens. You know, if I were to go home this evening, and I'm not going to do this, so don't tell my wife that. Uh, she's in a nursery in case she's listening. I don't mean this, just an illustration. But if I were to let my little Marley, our dog, go run through the woods and hang out with the wolves, she would not domesticate the wolves. Those wolves would make her become wild. And the same is true spiritually in Marley. We are foolish to think, oh, I can have non-Christian friends. I can have my buddies all be non-believers. And look, one of the hard knocks realities when Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And if you're going to be a disciple, count the cost. For many of us, that cost is making some changes in our relationships. For many of us, that is probably one of the biggest costs. It's not leaving money behind or leaving that behind. For many of us, that's probably one of the highest costs is that we need to establish for a season some new friendships, some new relationships, because those prior close relationships can be those who aren't walking with the Lord, and they end up then leading us astray. Verse 27, he says, The lazy man does not roast what he took in hunting, but diligence is a man's precious possession. So we notice the book of Proverbs giving to us this workshop on wisdom. This is one of these continual repetitious themes. The Bible has a lot to say in regards to wisdom and foolishness on the subject of laziness, of struggling with laziness in contrast to being diligent and hardworking. And here he creates this picture how someone can be so lazy that they don't follow through and complete the task or finish the thing that they were doing. He uses this analogy, particularly of, of the lazy man. He says, who doesn't roast what he took in hunting. And the idea there is, and again, keep in mind in that day, particularly almost for almost everyone in that culture, you literally had to go out into the field and put in the work in order to put food on your table. That was how it was. If you were going out hunting for your food, you had to go out into the field and put in the work to put food on your own family's table. There was nobody sending you relief checks. You had to do something. Everybody had to take personal responsibility. And here he describes someone who tragically is so lazy that they would go out, they would put in the work, they would put in the effort of the hunt and the scouting and do whatever they do and, and catch the animal. Maybe they'd even gut it and prep it. I don't know. But then they bring it home. But they were so lazy, instead of cooking and eating the meal, they were so lazy, they didn't finish what they started. They didn't carry the process out to completion. They just let the meat spoil. And the idea there is their laziness led to complete wastefulness. And that's a problem with laziness is laziness always ends up resulting in wastefulness, wasted opportunities, wasted possessions, and things that we have given opportunity with and stewardship over. And again, whenever we see our own lives or the life of any person being wasteful for that matter, you think, my goodness, why would you waste you know, precious food like that? Well, the root issue, the Bible says, the root issue of wastefulness 
is laziness. And so here God addresses that. He says, this, the lazy man, they don't even roast, they don't even cook what they caught in hunting. But diligence, in contrast, he says, is a man's precious possession. That is, uh, to be someone who is diligent is someone who's the exact opposite of being someone who's wasteful. If you're diligent, you're going to be conscientious, you're going to be economical and resourceful, and you're going to do what you can to manage and get the most out of situations because you're paying attention, you care about what you're doing, and you're putting in the hard work. And therefore, he says, that, that's a precious thing. If you can possess diligence in your spirit, it's one of the greatest assets you can have as a human being. Again, we may not all have skill, we may not all have talent, we may not all have, you know, great intellect or, or be highly educated or as smart as the person next to us, but we all have the opportunity to just work and just to be diligent and conscientious and do our part to put in our best effort. And he says, if you possess a diligent spirit, that's, that's a precious, valuable asset that you possess as a person. Verse 28, he concludes chapter 12 saying, and in the way of righteousness is life, and in the pathway, excuse me, in its pathway, there is no death. So again, the idea there in living right, it's going to allow us to live a life that generally is going to experience more health, better welfare. We're going to avoid paths to do things that are self-destructive and cause harm to our own lives. Chapter 13, he comes back to this theme of the younger generation appreciating the value and direction of the older generation. He says, chapter 13, verse 1, a wise son heeds his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. So here he comes back to this idea of the son with the father, and he comes back to this point as he's addressed numerous times already in our study in Proverbs, that it is a display of wisdom for a child to not only listen to but when he says there to heed, the idea is to pay attention and to embrace, to follow. It's a display of wisdom for a child to not only listen, but to embrace the instruction that comes from their parents. God says that is a wise child. And particularly, not just instruction from their parents, but particularly notice the father's instruction. Why? Because that is God's order and design as God has given authority to the husband and the father in the household. He should be the primary one instructing the household, providing instructions and direction and training the children in that sense of what is good and moral and right and, and recognizing that role of not only the parents as instructors, but particularly the fatherly instruction as the patriarch in the home with that role and responsibility from God and the authority to exercise such, he says it is a wise child who recognizes I should listen to my father's instruction. I, I should take advantage of his wisdom and his direction in my life because, again, God's design is for a parent to protect and to guide and to do what they can to prepare and to train their children to do what? Be successful human beings, right? <laughs> to be able to live well, to not live foolishly, to not live self-destructively. So God's order and design in the parental role is that children be under their parents' covering and under the direction of their parents for the express purpose that as they are growing and progressing, as they're naive and they're learning and they're preparing for adult independent life, that they would be receiving constant instruction. 
and continual direction, helping them to be molded and their character to be developed so that they end up being out in the world as an adult, as a blessing and not as an out-of-control burden. And God has given that role to the parent, so he says... It is wise, not only does the parent realize their role and embrace their role, but he says it's really wise when the young person, the son, the daughter, can recognize that's my parent's role, and I'd be wise to take advantage of that, not to resist that or rebel against that. And again, in healthy parent-child relationships, that makes complete sense that God would want a child to listen to their father's instruction when it's a healthy dynamic because, bottom line, parents have much greater experience with life. They have much greater understanding on matters because they've lived longer. Many of things they've learned through the school of hard knocks that they could spare their children three years of misery in a 30-minute conversation if their children would just listen to their instruction. And so God's saying it's wise. Take advantage of that. Take advantage of the benefit of that instruction. They've been living longer. They have things to impart that can be very helpful, as well as the fact not just that they have greater experience and understanding, but parents also love their children. Any healthy parent loves their child and is not their enemy. They want the absolute best for their child. Contrary to their friends or their, their uh, you know, friends' parents, or, well, well, my parents or my friends' parents, they let them Your friends' parents don't love you like I do. They haven't put in the investment like I have. I care about your welfare. I want to see you do well to succeed and to be blessed. So therefore, because of the love that I have for you, I have a vested interest in mind that you would do best and you would do well. So because of how much I love you and because I do have more understanding and experience and wisdom than you, take advantage of my instruction. And God says a wise son recognizes that and takes advantage of that. Now, in contrast, he says the end of verse one, but a scoffer, which is kind of the opposite, a scoffer, someone who's arrogant and someone who mocks because of their prideful attitude, they scoff and mock. They do not listen to rebuke. And the word rebuke means just to confront error or to try and correct one who's doing what's wrong. And again, that doesn't have to be in a strong way, just, hey, you, 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 please don't do that that way. I want you to do this instead. Just the corrective word in, in, in any sense, whether stern or just in a very simplistic way. And he says, look, it's arrogance in a child's heart that causes them to refuse to hear when they're corrected in things by their parents. And, and actually, get, you know, to kind of get angry by that or to be frustrated. And look, let's be very candid. All of us kind of go through this process where that's a struggle for all of us at the end of verse 1 there. Where there's that arrogancy in us in our life at some point where we become scoffers and mockers and we don't want to listen to correction or to rebuke and particularly even from our parents, right? Anybody who's raised kids and anybody who's gone through childhood, which to the point we're all at in this evening, you know, as into adulthood, you know, there comes a point where a child stops asking questions and all of a sudden they have all the answers. You ever notice that? It's like, wait a minute, at one point, all you were doing was asking me questions about everything. Daddy this, mommy that, what? And, and it was questions, questions, almost you go, are you ever going to stop asking me questions about everything? Why and how come? And, and there's this curiosity and they're just, you're their hero. And they want, they have to learn everything from you. And then all of a sudden, gradually or sometimes it's like an overnight flip of a switch. They go from asking questions. And now all of a sudden they have all the answers. And you should be asking them questions. And they're questioning you. 
And he says that is just really ultimately just the arrogancy in the heart of a child who doesn't pay attention to God's design and is ultimately going to just bring problems into their life as a result. Verse 2 of chapter 13, he says, And a man shall eat well by the fruit of his mouth, but the soul of the unfaithful feeds on violence. So again, a wise man can utilize his mind and his words spoken, the fruit of his mouth, to sow good, to help people, to nourish people, to benefit people. And then he says, and, and there can be fruit that's reaped from that. There can be reward from that, that someone using their mind and their communication you know, skills can sow good things and reap fruitful reward through their helpful communication as a form of work. It produces and supplies for them what is needed in their own life. And then he mentions those on the contrast of that, verse 2, whose hearts are not faithful to God, that is, they don't live right. And he says those people, sadly, end up having nothing other than an appetite for hurting people. So in contrast, those who don't live right, they're not wanting to use their words to help people, to speak fruitful, beneficial things. Instead, they are using their words when they're not living right and they have an appetite just to hurt people. And often, they use their words to devour people and just to bite and, and harm people and speak in ways. It kind of reminds me of the verse we looked at last week when he talked about those who speak like the piercings of a sword. And, and their words are just very destructive in their communication. And the idea here is wisdom understands our words can either be productive or they can be destructive. And so wisdom causes us to pay attention depending upon our heart condition. Our words are either going to be productive and beneficial and helpful where if our heart condition's not right, our words can end up being very destructive and harmful instead. Verse 3, he says, And he who guards his mouth, now that certainly attaches to what we're just talking about, he who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. That's almost one of those proverbs you want to just memorize, right? Who cannot say that one there is applicable for everyday living. One of the wisest ways, God says, to protect yourself, to protect myself from trouble, from harm, from self-destruction is very simply, he says, to guard our words. God says, do you want to keep yourself from things that are ruinous, that harm you, that harm others? God says, using restraint in our speech is a very wise safeguard. It can avoid for us many times extra heartache and additional problems by just guarding our mouths. You know, it's interesting. It's, it's the only muscle in the human bo on the human body that actually has a cage. You, got, you, just, you just shut the cage. The hard part is, as James talks about, having the self-control <laughs> to be able to do that. That's why James says if somebody can tame the tongue. I mean, it's like more amazing than anything else. Because it is a challenge, but the idea is even as they you know, seek to tame animals, it's, it's something that we have to work on. We have to try and be conscious of. And so he says, look, if you guard your mouth, you'll preserve your life from a lot of trouble. But in contrast, and boy, we all known this at one time or two, right? He who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. You know, if we're always opening our mouths, if we're freely speaking, if we always need to say something, if we feel it's always the right thing to express what's on our mind, something's on my mind, I've got to get it off of my mind. Well, maybe go tell God it's on your mind then. Sometimes that's the better way to do it. 
Sometimes the best thing to do is not always to tell people what's on your mind, even if it's right. Because just the way that you say it or how it comes across or the way you go about it, not everything that's in our mind is supposed to come out of our mouths. And here he says, if we open our mouths all the time, we're always giving our opinions or maybe we're complaining or we're passing along stories or information that we heard and kind of telling somebody else what we know or we're always expressing our feelings or whenever we're in a mood, we have to, you know, just kind of let ourselves go with our mood. And then in our mood, we're saying things. He says, look, if you do that, you open wide your lips. He says, you're going to find you're going to have destruction. The idea is that tends to be something where it leads us down a self-destructive path. And the idea is that sometimes opening our mouths, we end up ruining things for ourselves. You know, there are times where mouths have been opened and there has come the destruction of a relationship, a ruined relationship, where a mouth has been opened and because somebody could not keep their mouth shut, they ruined an opportunity. And something could have been an opportunity, but because they could not regulate their mouth, they ruined opportunities and brought destruction into their own life. God says, verse 4, in the soul of a lazy man, this guy must have been hanging around for a while. God keeps coming back to him, huh? The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. So here the idea seems to be picturing kind of the, you know, the, the idealistic daydreamer of the lazy person. He says, lazy people, he said, they have plenty of desires. God here says, the soul of the lazy man desires. The idea is lazy people have all kinds of ideas, right? They have dreams. Oh, I'm going to do this. And, and, I, and I'm going to do that. And, and they have ideas and desires, but God says the problem is in their laziness, they never do anything. They never work to accomplish it. They talk about their dreams and they have all these great desires and ideas, but they never have enough diligence to work at it and actually accomplish it. Where diligent people, he says, are those who are consistently working and over time they shall be made rich. The idea is as they just diligently do things working day after day, day after day. They put in the work, and as you put in the work at anything, eventually you will be enriched in time by your hard work. Eventually, God will begin to honor that. And the idea here is it's just foolish, God's saying, to be someone who wants much, but who is never really willing to put in the work to accomplish anything. And that can be a real weakness at times for people that kind of just as unrealistic, got dreams and ideas, tons of you, you're a great visionary. And sometimes people there, I mean, they're incredible visionaries, they just don't work. They want to dream and then they want others to do work. And God says, no, it's okay to have dreams, it's okay to have desires, but you got to put together with that the diligence to be willing to put in the work to do things to see those dreams come to pass, to see those things be accomplished. And again, that doesn't happen overnight. And he says, sadly, the soul of the lazy man has all these desires, but he has nothing to show for it. The idea is he's just, his hands are empty. And no doubt in some ways he's just empty because he's always dreaming about this and ideas about that, but he never is willing to put in the work. And so he always comes up empty. And he's just stuck with continuous dreams where the soul of the diligent, God says, he ends up finally being rewarded Rich. Now, it is interesting that even as God rewards the work ethic of the diligent in the sense of practicality of work, you notice verse 4, he says, the soul of the lazy man, the soul 
of the diligent man? Again, the same is true here, you might say, for spiritual life as well. How our soul can be empty and lacking, or our soul can be fulfilled and be enriched depending upon whether or not we are lazy spiritually or whether our soul is diligent spiritually. Again, oh, I want to grow. I want to be fulfilled. I want to experience more of the Lord. And, and, but yet there's, there's no diligence in the spiritual life. There's no diligence to be committed to reading the word of God and going to church consistently and seeking the Lord. And, and if we're not diligent and we don't put in the, the, the effort in the spiritual gym, if you would, Paul told Timothy, exercise yourself towards godliness. If we don't exercise diligence spiritually, our soul is just going to be empty. And we're not going to experience what God wants. But he says the person who's diligent in their soul, they're going to end up finding they're enriched. And again, that's where spiritual wealth and fulfillment comes as we're diligent spiritually. Verse 5, he says, a righteous man hates lying, but a wicked man is loathsome and comes to shame. Now, remember in the last chapter we saw there regarding God's perspective that the Bible said that, that lying was an abomination to the Lord. That those who are dishonest and aren't communicating what is true, that God takes that very seriously. And so it makes complete sense when in chapter 12, verse 22, he says, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are his delight. Well, it would only go by saying then that if I'm living righteous, that is, I'm in right relationship with God, I should love what God loves and hate what God hates. And so therefore, he says, the person who's in right relationship with God and living right they despise lying. They don't just, nah, man, people shouldn't lie. They have a hatred for it. They despise dishonesty. They despise lying in their own life, and they despise it among others. Why? Because they understand like God does, not just that God despises it, but they also understand how damaging lying is. Lying is incredibly destructive. It's incredibly ruinous, so therefore we should have a strong you know, hatred towards it because it harms people so greatly. And so even as God despises it, we should have that same attitude. But he says in contrast to that in verse 5, that wicked people, in contrast, they don't have any conviction. So they're okay with shameful ways, loathsome. The idea is, is that which stinks and is just, you know, foul in its odor. They're, they're okay with kind of foul and shameful ways, and they end up disgracing their life ultimately as a result of that. Verse 6, he says, And righteousness guards him whose way is blameless, but wickedness overthrows the sinner. So the idea there in verse 6 is if we live with integrity and we steer clear of hidden guilt over wrong activity in our private life, that's the idea of living blameless without guilt. doesn't mean we're perfect, but it means that we're not able to be blamed for something that we're doing that we know is consciously wrong and it's hidden that somebody doesn't have evidence to say, hey, well, you're blamable for doing this in your private life. That's the idea of blameless. Not perfect, but we're not living in a way where we're doing hidden wrong things. We have integrity. And he says when we live with integrity, that actually, that way of living guards us from many problems and harmful pathways and bringing self-harm. In contrast, he says, if we choose to live sinfully, verse 6, rebelling against what's right, maybe hiding wrongdoing, giving one image publicly, but then privately, we have this little dark thing going on here. He says, understand, if you're living like that, 
what's going to eventually happen is he says the sinner eventually becomes overthrown by their own wickedness. The idea is like a tidal wave. It eventually is going to catch up to you, and it's going to be like a tsunami when it eventually catches up. The Bible says if we sow to the wind, we end up reaping the whirlwind, and wicked behavior, you know, it just kind of has a way where eventually in time it will catch up. And we may think for a while, oh, I'm getting away with this, I'm doing that, and the reality is is all we're doing is wasting time because eventually wickedness always catches up. And when it eventually catches up, that's simply because wicked behavior has a built-in process of self-destructive. You can't do what's wrong and somehow avoid the reality that God says, when you do what's wicked, I put a built-in system of self-destruction there because God doesn't want us to do what's wrong. You know, a lot of times we think that, you know, uh, sin is wrong because it's, you know, forbidden. And, and the reality is, you know, sin is, is not bad because it's forbidden only. It's forbidden because it's bad, because it ruins us. And so God says, I don't want you to be overthrown. So God says, be blameless, do what's right, avoid the overthrow, the, you know, the, the tidal wave, the hurricane blowing over your life when wickedness, the wind comes whipping through and punishing those who do such. Verse 7, he says, there is one who makes himself rich, yet has nothing, and then one who makes himself poor, yet has great riches. So some people, he says, verse 7, they'll do all that they can in life to enrich themselves, Again, whatever that looks like, they're doing things to try and make themselves rich and to make things better for themselves. They're, they're, they're behaving in ways and they're doing this and they're trying that. And yet there are those, he says, who make themselves rich, yet they end up in the end having absolutely nothing. And there could be many reasons for that. Sometimes it's just the cost of getting rich. And there is a cost to getting rich. And sometimes it's just the pursuit of you know, the, the, the career or what it requires, sometimes it's more than what was expected. And the cost of getting rich ends up robbing people of many other things in their lives as the result of that. And sometimes they end up just losing in the end. And look, they may have a lot materially, the Bible say. They may have all kinds of stuff materially because they've managed to enrich themselves. But listen, folks, there are people who have a lot materially and they are completely empty. They have enriched themselves, but not paying attention to the cost of enriching themselves. They have absolutely nothing in regards to what really matters in life. They have no peace of mind. Some people have ravaged and ruined their families. Some people have become so consumed, and other people have been taken down roads of compromise in their greediness to get rich, and they have absolutely nothing because they don't even have sleep at night because they're constantly afraid of what's going to happen because maybe of right, wrong things that they've done. So listen, just because somebody has the outward image of riches doesn't mean everything is wonderful and fine for them. Now, others, he says, they may make themselves poor, yet they can actually have great riches. The idea is just kind of like the paradoxical idea. Others may live in a way where they've given up money, or maybe they've given up opportunity to make money in some ways, Yet, God says they can still end up being rich. The idea is rich in other things. They can end up being enriched personally. Maybe uh, they made a better investment in the grand scheme of life, God says. 
They took the route where, in a sense, they made themselves poor. They didn't embrace this opportunity or they didn't you know, chase after more money or they gave up an opportunity to be wealthier in some way. And yet, though they made themselves poor, they are actually very greatly wealthy. They're wealthy in other ways. They have a sense of fulfillment in what they're doing and they find themselves you know, uh, realizing what they do matters much more and they may have less materially, but they have fulfillment and they're rich in the sense that they know they're doing things that are of value and benefit. They're rich in the sense that perhaps though they've given up great opportunity economically, they've got a very healthy family. And maybe they had to give up this or not take advantage of that, but in so doing, they preserved other things. And they have a healthy family situation, and they're wealthy in that sense that they've become a very healthy person, and maybe even just in the sense that they're valued greatly by other people as well. You know, there's no greater example of one who's made themselves poor, yet at the same time has become rich than Jesus himself. The New Testament tells us that Jesus... You know, though being rich, he made himself poor, that through his poverty, we might become rich. And that's ultimately what happened. Jesus gave up all that he had, and through him giving up all that he did sacrificially, our lives have been greatly enriched through that very thing. Verse 8, he says, And the ransom of a man's life is his riches, but the poor does not hear rebuke. Now, the idea here seems to be in verse 8, you know, wealthy people, when you think of a ransom, you speak of ransom something that you pay off, you know, so you think of like being kidnapped or something like that, what's the ransom price? And so here he gives the idea that the wealthy person has enough financial resources that they have the power to pay what's needed to get themselves out of trouble. So if somebody does capture them or kidnap them or kidnap their children, they have the wealth and the ability to pay the ransom to get themselves out of trouble, right? I mean, think about typically when people are kidnapped for ransom, it's usually not poor people, right? It's usually wealthy people because kidnappers understand, hey, that family, they can pay a big ransom. And so they have the power to do that. So again, oh, it must be so nice to be wealthy. Well, there are some challenges that come along with being wealthy, God's saying. Now, on the other side of that, God says, but the poor does not hear rebuke. The, the term in the Hebrew literally does not hear threat. And it seems to be the contrasting idea here that the person in, in poverty does not have the same power as the wealthy person to get themselves out of trouble with their finances. They're at a disadvantage. But in some way, God says the good news is nobody usually comes threatening them because nobody wants anything to do with them because they're poor. <laughs> Nobody's going to kidnap a poor person because they realize they're not going to pay us anything. <laughs> in a sense, they're well, just, you captured one. Well, that's just one less mouth to feed. We're poor anyway. And so God says here, look, understand wisdom recognizes it's good to just be content with what you have. There are blessings and challenges to being rich, God says, and there are blessings and challenges to being poor. The Bible just tells us godliness with contentment, that's great gain. Both have different angles to them. Verse 9, the light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. So the one who lives right is going to experience light and joy. That's going to be part of the byproduct of living in the light, being able to see clearly. But he says the lamp of the wicked, those who are doing what's wicked, are going to be put out. The idea is when we live wickedly, the Bible says that's always going to lead into darkness, and it's going to cause us to be at a disadvantage. That light will ultimately be put out. We'll lose more and more light, and we'll go into a darker and darker place as we go down that path. Verse 10, another great insight. By pride comes nothing but strife, 
but with the well-advised is wisdom. So notice, by pride comes nothing but strife. That is, when any person or any people, the Bible says, are walking in pride, the end result, God says, you can bank on it, will always be strife. It'll always be strife in relationships. Because pride is basically the human error of seeing myself as superior. So therefore, if I'm superior, my right comes first. If I'm superior, I'm right, you're wrong. If I'm superior, I get my way, you don't get my, your way. And so pride creates this kind of dynamic where whenever there is pride, it's always going to lead to strife and division and constant you know, angst in relationships. And whenever strife is going on, God says, whenever strife starts to happen in your marriage, in your relationship, and any, whenever God says you start to see strife, God says you can always trace it back. There's a root. Follow the root back. And God says you can follow the root back. What's causing all the strife? God says pride. Pride. That's just somebody's being proud. Or both parties are, are exercising arrogance and pride, and therefore it's causing that strife. Now, in contrast to that, he says, wise people have humility to seek out and respond to the value of other people's advice or input. So in the same way, pride says, I'm superior, so you've got to be wrong, and I've got to be right, and I deserve my way, and your way cannot be honored, I'm sorry, and therefore it causes strife and division. God says, the, the wisdom is to have a, a humble enough spirit to recognize, you know what, I'm, I may not always be right. Imagine that. Sometimes someone else may actually have you know, a better angle on that or actually be correct in their perspective. And wise people not only appreciate, but they respond to the value of the advice and input of others. They recognize that things need to be learned in life by listening to others. So here God says, the path to having wisdom, look at it, the path to having wisdom in life and in situations is to seek to be what? Well advised. Whether that's just by a companion, one person we're in a relationship with, or whether it's that's by comrades and companions around us or counselors God's given to us around us, the best decisions are well-informed decisions. So God says, do you want to be wise? Become well-advised. Seek people's advice. Listen to people's input because if you're well-advised, you will end up having wisdom in whatever it is you're trying to work through. Verse 11, he says, wealth gained dishonestly will be diminished, but he who gathers by labor will increase. So the idea here in verse 11, it's wise to accrue money, we might say honorably, by gradually earning it because that's what helps you to learn to appreciate the value of money. Wealth obtained, he says, dishonestly. The idea is wealth obtained by crooked means, or we might say by having to do very little to earn it, get rich quick, or you know, compromises or shady things. He says that kind of wealth, it won't last. It won't be something that's hung on to, but it'll be something that's, instead he says, it's going to end up being lost somehow. Either things are going to go awry, maybe if something was done that was crooked, things are going to bust and fall apart, or if in some way, maybe, you know, it's just that the wealth was earned in a way quickly where it wasn't really labored and earned and worked for gradually, progressively over time, 
that wealth is going to end up being diminished for another reason, because you're not going to appreciate the value of money. So you're going to get a whole lot of wealth, and if you didn't learn to appreciate and build the character by working for it and earning it, you're not going to have a proper appreciation for that wealth, and then you're just going to mismanage it. Because you're not going to be able to say, do you know how long it took me in hours to have enough money to, I don't know if I'm going to spend the money on that, because that equates to, yeah, I don't know. And then all of a sudden, you become a whole different steward financially because you've learned the value of money and you've built character because you learned how to work and labor. And again, something very wonderful. That's why he says here in our verse, he who gathers by labor will be the person who increases, who gets a hit. That is the person who learns to work and labor and gradually, little by little, they just work and do things ethically. They don't cut corners. They have a good work ethic, and they just labor and labor and labor, and little by little, they just accrue, and as they, they're building character at the same time, they're building their bank account, and they're learning the cost and the value of the transaction of working and what it takes to gather and make money, and then the result of that, they increase because they did it properly and gradually, and it has a good foundation, and they also have a much better appreciation for finances, so they tend to manage them with much better appreciation because you value your money. Verse 12, he says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when desire comes, it is a tree of life. So when you know what this is like, when you wait for something to happen, to come to pass, some desire in your heart, and you're just longing for that desire and longing for that desire, and it seems like it's never materializing and it's not transpiring, that delay of that hope for something to happen, the deferment of it coming to pass, man, that can, that can just really make you heart sick. Oh, Lord, I just is this ever going to happen? And, and he says that can really be a difficult, difficult thing where it weighs heavenly upon a person. And I think we all know that to some degree, that deferred hope of something we've been longing for to happen. He says, but when the desire comes, it's like a tree of life. When that long-held desire finally happens, like a tree of life, and it takes root, and all of a sudden it starts to blossom in front of you, and all of a sudden it's like you come alive again, right? I can't believe this. This my, my desire's coming to pass, and all of a sudden you see what God starts to do, and he says it's like a tree of life taking root, and it just kind of becomes something that blossoms into a whole new reinvigorating of your life when that desire finally comes to pass. Verse 13, he says, he who despises the word, the idea is they don't appreciate the word of others, or we might think of that as well as the word of God, they'll end up being destroyed. But he who fears the commandment will be rewarded. So how we relate to words of authority, God says, will strongly determine the outcome of our experience. The words of authority, whether it's a supervisor, whether it's some person in authority over us in any way, he says, if you despise the word, the commandment of authority of people in your life, and you despise it, and you disdain it, and you resist it, God says, understand, that's usually generally not going to work out well for you. He says, you're going to end up doing things to destroy yourself, but he who fears the commandment, that is, respects an order given by someone in authority, will be rewarded. Typically, it works out much better, God says, to not be rebellious to authority, and it usually works out way better when you're someone who is just respectful and submissive to authority. 
And look, that same certainly is true spiritually as it comes to God himself and to the word of God. We can determine the same things. Verse 14, the law of the wise is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. So the idea, the law is, speaks of a governing boundary. So honoring boundaries that are wise boundaries that have been set up. If we respect those wise boundaries, God says that's going to bring life. But, and it's going to also turn you away from the snares of death. Again, if we live within wise, safe, healthy boundaries, it's going to keep us on track. We're going to generally have a much better life, and it's going to turn us away, notice, from the traps in life, the snares of death. Verse 15, he says, good understanding gains favor. So again, if we understand and we're doing what's good, we're going to experience favor in our lives. Contrast, the way of the unfaithful is hard. I love the old King James. It says the way of the transgressor is hard. And boy, that is a good statement to remember, a good nugget of wisdom. Those who choose a path of rebellion always find by the school of hard knocks, it's really a hard path. God says the way of the one who transgresses God's ways find that's a really hard hard road. It's a road that is difficult because it's striving against one's maker and it makes things very hard in the experience. The way of the unfaithful, the transgressor is a hard, hard path, God says. And every prudent man therefore acts with knowledge. The idea is using knowledge. You want to know what's right. Prudent people think ahead. They, they see forward, so they want to know the facts and once they know the facts, hey, I want to make sure I have the facts. Give me the knowledge here. And then they think forward and they act once they have the knowledge. The idea is they don't act until they know. They don't act until they have the facts. They want to have the right information before they act because they're thinking forward. But a fool, contrast, they're just reactionary. They don't wait for knowing the details. They don't wait to have the right information. They just let their emotions dictate them and they just express their folly openly because they're reactive and their reaction is really just the thing that's their foolishness. Verse 17, he gives the contrast of two different messengers. A wicked messenger falls into trouble. So again, if you're using your words to speak in wicked ways, God says the end result is going to be trouble. But a faithful ambassador, one who's seeking to be faithful to speak the truth to help people, in contrast, they will bring health. Poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction, but he who regards a rebuke will be honored, much like a repetition of what we looked at earlier in our chapter. Verse 19, we come back to this idea again, a desire accomplished is sweet to the soul. You know, again, when you have a desire for something, you're pursuing something, and eventually that desire finally comes to pass, and God says, man, when a desire is accomplished, it is such a fulfilling rewarding thing, but he says, in contrast, for the person who's not interested in good desires, but just pursuing evil, he says, they can't even bring themselves to the place where they depart from evil, <laughs> let alone doing what's right. They can't even depart from the course of what is evil because that is their greatest desire. He who walks with wise men, the Bible says, will be wise but the companion of fools will be destroyed. So again, notice the idea. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. What's God reminding us? Again, this idea of who we interact with. So important. 
Who we interact with shapes our life. It influences our life tremendously. He says the person who wants to be wise can help themselves to grow in wisdom. And God says one of the best ways to do it is look for other wise people. Look for wise people and God says go walk with them. Walk with them. Walk around them. Be in their presence. He says he who walks with the wise men will be wise. What a wonderful thing. God says, just find someone wise. Find a few wise people. Walk with them. Do life with them. And God says, you will find that you will just glean that wisdom and you will end up being wise yourself. Where in contrast, God's caution is the foolishness, he says, is the companion of fools will be destroyed. And boy, isn't that such a, a reality that we have seen that people who make the foolish decision of instead of looking for wise people to walk together with in life, they make their companions fools. And God says, find people who have fools as their companions. And God says, what you will find is ultimately those kind of people, right? We see it in the news. We, we read you know, tragic stories of people, you know, a bunch of young people hanging around, acting like fools. And what happens? The horrible auto wreck or the drinking and driving accident or the overdose of drugs, and again, we can trade, the companion of fools ends up destroying our lives. So important who we spend our time with and who we interact with.